Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Australia's domestic violence statistics have been described as a national scourge with one in four Australian women experiencing physical violence since the age of 15. While the COVID-19 crisis is unprecedented, it's left many victims of domestic and family abuse inside their homes with their abuser, all day, every day, as people isolate to prevent the spread of the virus. While for many of us it's meant working from home and staying indoors, for women and children experiencing domestic violence, it can make it even harder to get help. Cathy Humphreys is Professor of Social Work at the University of Melbourne. She's worked as a social work practitioner in the mental health, domestic violence and children, youth and family sector for 16 years, before becoming a social work academic. Cathy Humphreys sat down for a Zoom chat with our reporter Sylvie Van Wall to talk about domestic violence in this time of COVID-19 isolation. So with COVID-19 forcing many couples to isolate together 24-7, what are the numbers looking like on domestic violence in Australia at the moment? Yes, well, the trends in this area and the data, it's still very early days to be able to see what's happening. Probably the most worrying aspect of the data thus far is that there's been a suppression of the amount of calls that women have been making to helplines. Um, and also that children um, are no longer visible either. So that just talking to some workers in Western Australia in the department yesterday, they said it's never been quieter. And similarly, certainly when the lockdown first started and knowing that this is a danger point for women, as you were saying, uh, and yet there was a 30% decline in the calls to the helpline. So... It's worrying to see that sort of picture. It's just as worrying to see a depression in the help-seeking data as it is to see a spike. Can you explain why it's worrying to see a decline in the calls? Well, it basically means that women are not getting an opportunity to call for help, even though they're in a situation where they're probably potentially experiencing a lot more violence, um, both physical and emotional and sexual violence but they haven't got the opportunity to be able to seek help. Now, there has been an increase, and this is an international, showing up internationally as well, an increase in the use of searching on websites and chat rooms to try and gain um, information. So it's really women's access to phones is, is what we're seeing is dropping out. So there's a lesson there about expanding the provision to make sure that there are ways of being able to access women and their children at a time when you've got increased danger. So you did mention the the chat room searches are going up. How else would we be able to tell that there's an increase in domestic violence if the calls aren't coming through? Well, I mean, I think that it's not easy to see what's going on. I think we don't really fully understand at all what's going on. We won't know until later what the impacts have been. But what we do know is that a particular risk factor for women in the domestic violence situation is isolation. So that we've got this paradoxical situation almost where when you're doing a risk assessment around domestic violence, one of the key issues you look for is how isolated is this woman? You know, have all her support networks been knocked out? 
Is she still able to work? Has she lost all her friends? Have they moved to a place that's of the perpetrator's choosing rather than where she would want to live? So you're making an assessment about her isolation because the more isolated she is, the more powerful the abuser and the more powerful he is in being able to determine what the situation is and get her to try and think that the way he thinks is the only way of thinking. Um, That means that what perpetrators like to do is to suggest that the woman is complicit or, in fact, is responsible for the abuse that she's experiencing. And he has more chance of doing that the more isolated she is. So it's a long-term tactic of abuse. And so if you go back to the way in which concentration camps work, that what you do is they're based on a certain level of tactics of control, which are all very similar about how do you establish a regime of power and control over another person. And isolation is a key factor. At the moment, we've got state-supported isolation. And we know that, in fact, that's dangerous for women living with domestic violence and for children living with domestic violence. So going off of that, Cathy, do you think there was much consideration for a potential spike in domestic violence when these isolation conditions were enforced in Australia? Look, I think there was a level of awareness that this isolation, that isolation is bad for a lot of people, not just for domestic violence survivors and victims, that you know, it's bad for people's mental health. It's bad for their physical health. It's bad for domestic violence. It's bad for child abuse. There's no doubt that isolation's a bad thing. But of course, when you've got this extraordinarily virulent virus, uh, you don't have too many choices about this. And these are these are the trade-offs. You know, and clearly, there's a massive economic trade-off that's just um, going to be felt for a generation at least. So, you know, there are trade-offs here. So it's not suggesting that the government shouldn't have shut down. It's just saying that it's dangerous for some people, including survivors of domestic violence. Now, there's compensation um, that's being made at this point from both the state and federal governments going, we need to be aware that uh, there's a group of women and children out there that are going to be doing very badly. And so there is funding that's been made available to try and support um, women and children in this space and some men as well. And certainly some of the funding will go to trying to um, house or accommodate perpetrators of domestic violence um, and that we would also be trying to There is also No to Violence, which provides the men's helpline. They're finding that they're actually getting quite a lot of um, calls themselves and that would be some support provided to the helplines as well. So let's talk about the different forms that abuse can take and why these isolation conditions are maybe right for those forms of abuse. What are the main types of abuse that domestic violence can take on? So for the most part, Physical violence doesn't need to be used often to establish a regime of power and control over another person. So when you're looking at the tactics of coercive control, the threat of physical violence or the use of physical violence may not be very common. But there are other forms of violence, um, which are the psychological forms of violence um, or threats of sexual abuse or threats of physical abuse or threats to children or threats to pets or actual child abuse or actual pet abuse 
which are ways of controlling women living with domestic violence. So there are a range of tactics that are used, of which isolation is one key one, and that means that you don't have to work so hard to establish power and control through violence. And have we seen patterns like this before with previous disasters? What we know is that when you've got disasters happening, that you do have a spike in domestic violence. So that, say, when we looked at the bushfires in Black Saturday, there's been quite a lot of really good research, particularly done by researchers at University of Melbourne, to look at the impact of Black Saturday and the bushfires. What you saw, and there's a very interesting piece of work that was done, which looked at low-impact bushfire areas, medium-impact bushfire areas, high-impact bushfire areas, and the domestic violence in the high-impact areas was much greater. So that's an interesting and important issue about when you have disasters, you may also have an increase in domestic violence um, for a whole range of complex issues that of which we don't understand all of them. So in that particular study, one of the protective factors for women was whether they managed to retain their work and employment. Now, what that meant, you know, was it just about the importance of their economic contribution to the family? Was it to do with the fact that they weren't so isolated? Was it to do with the fact that they weren't as at risk for a range of reasons? It's a bit hard to know what the role of employment might be in these circumstances, but certainly once people lose their employment, whether they're men or whether they're women, there's an increase in domestic violence. Is that just because of the the stress factor of not having enough money to keep up the household? I think that it's more complex than that. It is about this thing about isolation, level of time spent together, pressure cooker, the stresses of domestic violence, but also you see it's about the gender inequality as well. It can get writ large. Like if you're at home all day, then women will expect men to be doing their share of the work and men are not used to necessarily, well, a group of men are not used to doing any domestic work. Um, So there can be areas where the gender inequality gets played out in very pressure cooker ways when people are at home and unemployed. Cathy, what particular pressures are workers facing at the moment? I think an issue for the workers is that they're in very different territory from where they've previously been. So we've always had safe ways of talking with women and when women come in saying, what's the, how can I safely contact you? Well, at the moment, not feeling as though you can safely contact women puts particularly the workers who are working with women living with domestic violence and children working with domestic violence, living with domestic violence, puts them in very difficult territory where they're very worried about a lot of the women that they're seeing. I mean, paradoxically, there's a group of women who are separated who are feeling much safer because, in fact, with lockdown, uh, they're not getting harassed as much by their ex-partners and are just as easily contactable from workers in the sector. I think we're seeing pressure on police to have to be the ones, as the only ones who can go into the home um, easily at the moment. I think our child protection workers are particularly worried at the moment because of the ways in which there's no one keeping eyes on children at the moment. So it's all very well having kids at home for families that are functional, but 
where you've got a domestic violence perpetrator in the family, they're also children who are living with domestic violence are also children who are being abused. And so there's a lot of worry about those children not being in school, those children not being in childcare, those children not being able to go to their sporting or extracurricular activities where other people have eyes on them and where they escape the home. Because, you know, homes aren't necessarily a safe place for these children. And so workers are very knowledgeable about this and very concerned about those sorts of issues. So I think that there's also been opportunities for the workforce to be creative. So there's been lots of creativity um, and we've seen that everywhere, but it also functions in this space too, that there are creative ways that are very specific for contacting women and children in their particular circumstances or contacting men about the issues of violence that they may be worried about. So I think that overall there's been a lot of pulling together of the workforce in this space and trying to be creative, trying to seize opportunities, but also there's increased worry about the way in which they are able to operate at the moment. So you mentioned some of the initiatives that have been put in place to help the victims of domestic violence, and you did talk about shelters briefly. Um, how do shelters operate during this time, considering people have to stay you know, 1.5 metres away and uh, they can only go out with their families if they go outside? My understanding is that, <clears throat> that the shelters, the refugees, have had to take in only one family at a time, or, or those are the ones where... You see, there's been a shift in the way refuges operate. There's some refuges where it's a group of families in together, but there's also a different model where you have different houses that are refuges and with a, a hub in the middle. And with the, so they can still take in people, um, more than one family, because they have a, a distributed model. On the other hand, it is really so important that uh, women and their children or men have a place to go uh, to escape the violence so that one of their initiatives that's being provided by the state is a lot of brokerage funding to try and help women into accommodation with bonds and things like that. But it's also about making sure there's provision for extra accommodation support throughout the state. When you say accommodation, are we talking about hotels? What are what are the it extra could be. accommodations? Like hotels are very problematic in these circumstances, but also they are a roof over your head and a place to go. So making sure that some of those accommodation outlets that are available to people coming in from overseas are also available for um, women and children escaping domestic violence or a place to put the perpetrator of violence so that women and children can stay at home. So how would someone who is a victim of domestic violence at the moment be able to reach out if they're too afraid to make a phone call, say? What, what are the other alternatives? Well, the 1-800-RESPECT phone number has a chat line that's, you know, an important avenue of um, being able to reach out. The police are making it really clear as well that they are still open and to be really clear that they're open and can be contacted and that women should know that they can always go to the police stations. There's also women are often able to go to a range of other health organisations like their GPs and pharmacists 
And there's quite a lot of work happening to try and make sure that the health system is readily available to victim survivors and that they know that they're available. And what about if you're on the outside, say you're a friend or family member or a concerned neighbour, what can you do if you suspect that there's domestic violence going on in your vicinity? Well, the first line of action is usually call the police. I mean, quite often informal networks are the first line of action. When people can't do as much visiting and aren't as available because of the lockdown, then the police are being used more and more as the frontline services service under these circumstances. What are your thoughts on continuing uh, the new practices in response to domestic violence um, during the pandemic into the long term when the COVID-19 crisis is over? Is there any place for continuing some of these practices? Look, I think so. And I think that that's one of the big learnings. There's been a couple of big learnings out of this. I mean, one is recognising how important chat lines could be. And at the moment, our key helpline, Safe Steps, hasn't had a well-supported chat room, you know, chat function. And so thinking about, well, that's going to be important into the future that um, we now see that we need more of those, that service, that part of the service system developed. So I think that's important. I think that men have been reaching out to the men's helpline and there's also been quite a lot of them workers in men's behaviour change programs that have continued to contact men individually, um, more in sort of case management and support. And again, that's been important in terms of recognising that with support, um, men are more contained um, and that that's helpful. And so a bit more of that is also important. And I think that we're also looking at the development of different apps and there's been some really good work done by Laura Tartsia and Kelsey Hegarty at the university here, looking at the development of technologies in positive ways and looking at how we might deploy those more actively and that they would be used more actively at a time of crisis like this. Okay, so there is an app in development that is for, is it for perpetrators? So there's a range of availability of apps. The one in development at the moment is called the Better Man app. And that's one that Kelsey Hegarty's leading on. But also Laura Tartsia is leading on one um, for across the university. And that's been in development stage at the moment. And let's talk more about the outlets for uh, perpetrators or p- potential perpetrators. What, what can people do if they're worried about their aggressive behaviour? What sort of outlets do they have at the moment? We have what we call Nota Violence, which is the peak body for the men's services in Victoria and also in Tasmania. And there's a men's um, men's helpline, the men's referral service, MRS. That's a, a well-managed and well, um, well-supported helpline for men and they have the full range of services at their fingertips. And so recognising that and contacting the men's referral helpline, men's referral service helpline is probably the best avenue. Of course, you know, with mental health problems, there are other mental health services available like Beyond Blue um, and also Lifeline that are well-known and easily accessible. Let's talk about remote Indigenous communities. How differently do responses to domestic violence need to be tailored to those groups? Well, I think that, you know, there's some things that are very similar 
but tailoring response is different insofar as it has to be driven from internally within those communities a lot of the time. And that different communities will have different choices, different ways of being able to manage the situations domestic violence in their remote communities. But it is where the models are somewhat different because you do need to be asking what is what are the specifics of this community that would make a difference. And so I don't think it's for someone like myself to be going, oh, this is what Indigenous remote communities should be doing. There are issues of self-determination which need to be respected and drawn from within those communities and then supported by government to enact those different ways of working. Are there any other gaps that you've recognised, uh, anything that you see needs to be solved at the moment and any ideas you would have for further things that need to be implemented to deal with this crisis and the rise in domestic violence? You know, how long's your wish list? You want everything. I... First and foremost, you know, I would say that keeping new start at double the level that we're seeing at the moment is absolutely essential. One of the worst things that we've seen, and I think that why we haven't made any progress, where we've made less progress than we might have in the area of domestic violence, is that women are entrapped. Like, you cannot live on new start, particularly when you've got children. And once your children are over a certain age, as in very young, once they're over that age, you're on new start. And if you haven't got access to direct employment, if you're no longer still employed when you're leaving, then you're thrust onto Centrelink payments that are completely inadequate. And if we want women to have the ability to leave, you know, because a lot of people say, why didn't she leave? Well, actually, women do not want to escape with their children into total homelessness. And that's what you're looking at. There's almost no private rental market housing that's available for women who are living on New Start or Centrelink payments. So keeping Centrelink payments at a reasonable rate that you can actually survive on is a very important part of women being able to escape domestic violence. Because the money's about autonomy, isn't it? It's about independence and autonomy. So that if you haven't got a place to go to, you're you're not going to leave. And if you've got only inadequate Centrelink payments, they don't cover you. And our social housing has been uh, really diminished. Now, you know, our state government in Victoria is really working to try and up the level of accommodation that's available. And certainly I don't want to criticise them about not doing enough because they are working hard in a difficult space. But that's a key issue. Not having available social affordable housing is a key issue for women being able to leave situations of domestic violence. The other thing you could do, and when we are doing some of, is trying to keep more women safe at home with the offender excluded. But that doesn't work for all women. That will only work for some women. With the restrictions potentially being reduced on the horizon, do you think there will also be a decrease in domestic violence? I think that we might see a bit of an avalanche of people coming out of isolation and calling for help. Yeah, so even in China, once the isolation stopped, an awful lot of people applied for divorce so that we may be seeing a different pressure on the service system and the legal system once people are able to get out of isolation. Okay, well, I guess only time will tell. Only time will tell. (laughs) Cathy Humphreys, thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to be able to speak about these very important issues. 
Thank you to Cathy Humphreys, Professor of Social Work at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Sylvie Van Wall. If you've experienced or are at risk of family and domestic violence or sexual assault, call 1800RESPECT, 1-800-737-732 or go to 1800respect.org.au. For the Men's Referral Service, call 1300-766-491 or go to ntv.org.au. If you, a friend or a loved one, is experiencing a personal crisis, call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or go to lifeline.org.au. And of course, if you feel unsafe or are concerned for someone else's safety, please call 000 or contact the police in your state or territory. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on April 17, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvia Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. The Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.